Hey guys, John Paul me here, Actionable Intelligence. Today is Saturday, January 15th, and this is the weekly market update. The disclaimer, anything that you hear on this podcast or see in this video is not to be taken as investment advice. The information is provided for entertainment and informational purposes. I am not a financial advisor. I cannot give you financial advice. Please seek the guidance and counsel of a licensed financial advisor before making any investments. And do your own due diligence. It's your money. It's your responsibility. So before we get started, I'd like to touch on a few, <clears throat> a couple few issues or housekeeping issues. Number one, um, I try to get the videos out Saturday morning. That means I work on them sometimes Friday night, but I do work a real job in the real world. It's actually a six day a week job um, as a construction manager and it's very time consuming. So a lot of times I don't, I, I put together the slides and the information and the review of the items I'm gonna talk about in the weekly market update during the week. But sometimes I just don't have time. By the time I get home Friday night, I don't have time to put the video together. I, I, I don't wanna, put a bad product out. So sometimes I have to wait till Saturday during the day and then it comes out later. So a lot of people have been emailing me or they DM me and they're like, when's the video coming out? I appreciate and I'm happy that you guys are anticipating it. But I just want to explain why sometimes it's not on the schedule. You're, you're anticipating it to be at a certain time and it, I just try to get it out during Saturday. That's my goal right now. You know, I've said this before, I'd like to take the show and this whole operation full time. I'm heading in that direction. Last year was a very good year for the channel, for the newsletter, for all the things we've been talking about here for the last couple few years. So maybe 2022 is the breakthrough year. I don't know. We'll see. But uh, there's some other th issues involved that I don't really want to go into of a personal nature of why I just haven't went full time. So suffice to say, that's the explanation on that. Um, the other thing I want to do is answer a question that a subscriber of the newsletter posted on the Discord channel. Uh, one thing you may not know uh, when you become a subscriber to the newsletter, you have several several special little perks that I don't think you get in a lot of other places. Um, one of them is access to our Discord channel where we interact and we talk about things um, in real time, subjects that come up, news, portfolio updates that can't wait for the monthly issue because they may be timely or material to certain companies that we're holding. And we have a lot of smart people on there. Uh, we have a lot of people that are beginners too. So there's a lot of information flow. I really enjoy interacting with folks on there, but uh, that's a perk. The other perk is that, you know, the portfolio has really been in place for maybe a little bit over three years. So there are companies in there that really haven't done much or, people are wondering, why is this in the portfolio? They don't have a clue. So I, I make shorter informational videos. I have started, I think I've made three or four now. And uh, you have access to those. Those are only for subscribers. And they kind of give you the lowdown and the current reasoning of why uh, the stock is in the portfolio in a current update. So that's, uh, I, I think people are finding those very informative too. So you know, actionable intelligence alert newsletter uh, has done very well. It's not the best performing newsletter in the world. It's not the worst. We outperformed the markets the last couple of years Been riding the wave. So take a look at it if you're interested. Uh, what I wanted to say, though, was uh, there was a question in the discord, you know, about valuing. How do I value? How do I do valuation? How do I det determine valuation of the companies that I buy in the portfolio? I don't do valuation analysis of the companies in the portfolio. Why? Because most of them are cyclical businesses that I buy at a cyclical trough. So let's use uranium for an example. We were buying a lot of uranium juniors, I don't know, three years ago, and there was nothing to analyze uh, because any, if you were looking at them from an investment point of view, you wouldn't buy them. They had no sales, no earnings, no cash flow. They were issuing shares to conduct drilling or keep the lights on. What you were doing if you were purchasing the uranium juniors is you were speculating, you were speculating, you were not investing, you're speculating that there was going to be a change 
in the perception and dynamic of the uranium market such that the uranium price would go up and the market would revalue those juniors higher on anticipation or speculation that they would eventually become uh, producers and provide cash flow. So we're not doing cash flow analysis. What we're doing is we're trying to anticipate where the world's going, where the world is, where it's going, and then position ourselves such in beaten down uh, undervalued markets or ignored markets that have a, have a that are mispriced. That's what we're trying to do. And so, you know, we're, you know, we're not, we're doing asset plays in some cases, like in tankers, okay? Tankers are another cyclical business that if you looked at the historical uh, asset base, there's, a lot of them are selling for well below net asset value. But then you have to say to yourself, so no investment advisor would tell you to buy those. You, they would say, these are horrible investments. They don't normally produce very good dividends. They're in the trough of their business of a cyclical uh, downturn. Rates are down. Why would you buy this? You know, uh, you wouldn't. You wouldn't advise somebody to do that. So it's pointless to do that. What you're anticipating is that the various regulations that are coming out that are going to be more stringent on uh, emissions on ships, uh, the fact that the tanker fleet is very old, that we're anticipating scrapping and we're not seeing replacement vessels come in, you're speculating that that will tighten a cyclical market. It's a commodity business. Anybody can go commission a shipyard, get the financing, build a tanker and throw it on the spot market. I mean, it's more complicated than that, but it's not, there's no proprietary technology advantage or moat to this. So you're buying these things at the trough of their down cycle with the anticipation and knowledge that low prices cure low prices and that they will eventually enough supply destruction will happen that demand will overwhelm and you'll get a price increase in rates or in a metal or the oil price or whatever as supply temporarily exceeds demand and causes pricing uh, uh, movements to the upside and then consequently or conversely at the top there eventually will, you know, when you have outsized profits in a market because the price of oil has went up or copper and existing miners that have assets are making a ton of money, that will attract capital as other, other players come into the market that take advantage of those high margins. Now, this is like, you know, microeconomics 101. So that's basically the answer to that question. Um, I guess another way to sum it up is, you know, we're speculators. We're trying to turn a dollar into $10. Uh, you know, an investor is looking at, you know, what's the cash flow and dividend yield on a historical basis of British American tobacco when it has a 8.5% dividend as it does currently? And, uh, you know, what's the growth prospects? How's it going to manage the downturn in its business yet? It's, you know, cash flow. And we, we don't do that here. That's, that's, that's preservation of capital and investing. We do speculation here. Investing is perfectly good. I have investments, but that's not the purpose of this channel or this newsletter. Okay. We're trying to take a dollar and turn it into 10. Okay. Um, we're not trying to turn 10 into 11. That's there's plenty of other people that do that. Plenty of other advisors. You can go down to Edward Jones and they'll put you in all kinds of index funds that will help you do that. Get your average eight to 9% a year dividends reinvested, but that's what you guys aren't interested in. That's why you come here. So uh, I just wanted to clarify that because we have a lot of new people coming through and they're like, well, how are you you're, how are you coming up with these ideas and how do you buy them? They're speculations. We're speculating. We're in, bringing intensive amount of contacts that we have, informational flow that we have coming towards us through curation of people way smarter than us, sitting down, coming up with a framework of the world of industries, whatever, and seeking out and looking at bombed up, blown up industries and countries stocks, whatever, and seeing if there's some reason why that that stock should be down 90% or that industry should be down 90% or that commodity should be down 80%. And is it essential? And if it is, or if it's going to turn around, what's the catalyst for it to turn around? And then we should we take a position? You're not going to be able to put, you know, normal cash flow analysis to that and say, yes, that's a good investment. That's simply not what we do here. Um, so that might sound like a cop out, but that's just the facts. And uh, that's that's what it is. Okay. Um, again, I mean, oil is the story, guys. Energy is the story. Uh, we've talked for a while on this channel. I feel like, you know, I'm not the smartest guy in the room. There's a lot of smart people on Twitter. 
analysts. There were a couple hedge funds. Eric Nuttall's fund was up almost 200%. I think last year, Josh Young was up like over 300%. They're very concentrated portfolios. You know, we are spread out over several industries. Our oil companies did fairly well. Uh, but, you know, these guys are specialists, right, in certain things. So we're not at the top of the heap, but we're, you know, we're making above above average returns for people. And one of the calls we made last year was, you know, when oil got completely cratered and all this dumb commentary was coming out from Bloomberg and the media and CNBC, goofball Jim Cramer saying that, yep, this is the end of oil. I wouldn't buy oil. I mean, this is... I think we have an advantage because, you know, I may I may not be an oil company executive or an oil company analysis at Goldman, but I've been in the energy industry for my entire life. And I understand thermodynamics. I understand engineering. I understand math. And I was able to apply that to the situation and knowing all the different technologies and energy production, having been involved in it for so long and studied it for so long and built the things and ran the things myself, uh, that I knew that energy underpins everything that we do. It holds back entropy. It allows us to have civilization. It holds chaos at bay, if you will. And we've built an entire civilization around the use of cheap, ubiquitous, and easy to use fossil fuels. And we were not going to the media, the commentariat, the, the government officials, politicians, the stoops, in academia, we're telling everybody that we're going to transition to this new brave world uh, in 10 years. It, it's not going to happen. So now, the not only that, but we've attacked, we've attacked this life-giving industry, this fossil fuel industry. Uh, we're trying to drive up the finance. We've got Mr. Fink over there. I think it's BlackRock or wherever he's at. You know, he's pushing this agenda. He's the guy that backed up that small hedge fund that took on Exxon, okay, by committing shares to that proxy fight. So, you know, these people have an agenda. The agenda is, though, is not the agenda of the common people. People do not want to be poor. People do not want to be freezing. People don't like shortages. This scares people, okay? They want to see leadership. They want to see sensible policy. A sensible energy security policy is fuel diversification, non-reliance on any one technology. That's that's just common sense. And I think that you know, with we're, we we predicted this would happen. I think it gets worse. We haven't seen the worst of it yet. And um, the thing is, is it can be fixed with enough time and money keyword time and money. And right now we're strangling these industries for money. We're demonizing them. We're passing regulations. We're electing politicians that hate these industries are doing everything they can to hinder them. This is a recipe for higher prices and shortages. That's that simple. I think that eventually the pain becomes sufficient at a certain price level. You know, if you get to 200, you know, we'll see what happens in the midterm elections when oil is $100 a barrel this summer and gasoline is $4 a gallon at the pump, or if we're at $150 a barrel uh, coming up on that election, because once we hit 100, once we get that nine handle and we're heading towards 100, there's going to be panic, right? Politicians are going to panic. Uh, and I'll show you a slide later on where that's already starting with their dumb, compounding their dumb decisions with more dumb decisions. And we're going to have an energy crisis. Uh, high prices are going to have to come to sufficiently incentivize the industry to come back. And there's going to have to be a change in leadership because even with high prices, a lot of these companies are going to be hesitant to go out and make large investments if they feel, you know, what's the point? If they're going to steal it from us through windfall profits, if they're going to tax us, if they're going to litigate against us. I mean, there's ongoing litigation against fossil fuel companies in, in different jurisdictions. So uh, what I'm telling you is that we were ahead of this curve. We have a long way to go. As a matter of fact, uh, the other day I was looking on Twitter and Shy Girl had a quote or a little thing she put out, uh, energy analyst on Twitter. She said that there was a Twitter space going on. The Twitter spaces, if you're not familiar, is like this spontaneous little meetings they have, gatherings. Somebody will just say they're going to get on in the next 20 minutes and a bunch of people just click on if you follow them or whatever. And they'll be talking about energy, for example, or whatever, AMC, whatever they're talking about, different subjects. Uh, and you can just click on and listen and participate if you'd like. But 
the interesting thing was even yesterday with Bitcoin down like 40% or something in the last few months, there was two simultaneous uh, spaces going on, one with 250 people in it, which was about the oil price, and one about Bitcoin that was down 40% and had, you know, 4,700 people. So we're not overbought. We're not, you know, in a situation where oil is like peaked out or the interest in it is like there. We're just now beginning to see the generalist investor come back into energy. Um, really, I'm really excited to see what the fourth quarter earnings look like for a lot of these energy companies. Um, the cash flows are going to be enormous. Um, we're now, I mean, I think the first 15 days or whatever, we're January 15th today, and the energy, you know, energy's up 15% already this year. We are in a full-blown energy bull market. And there will be pullbacks. It will be volatile. We saw what happened recently when Mr. Biden released the SPR. I told you it was a fart in the wind. It was dissipated, just like previous ones. wasn't going to affect the price. And now you've exacerbated a situation or created another potential problem. You have to fill that back up at some point. You're going to fill it back up at ninety or hundred dollars a barrel. What are the Chinese? Remember, the Chinese were doing the same thing. They were selling off uh, material during the summer to try to affect the price, which they did slightly temporarily. But we knew these things don't work. The bottom line is you have issues with supply based on lack of investment for many, many years. It's not gonna be solved by dumping some oil from an SPR into the market. These are political things and there's gonna be more political hijinks. We have to be prepared. You know, If oil gets to $200 a barrel, let's say, let's, it's, anything's possible. I think we're gonna make all time highs and you know, oil. Look what happened with natural gas in Europe this summer or this winter already. Okay, why can't that happen with oil? Once the world realizes that uh, OPEC doesn't have the production capacity that they claimed, which we now are pretty much sure that's the case, and that you know, who's going to invest and go out and spend all those billions of dollars drilling out properties or trying to take risk if you're going to be demonized and possibly you know attacked by your government? You know, $200 a barrel, that's $7 a gallon gasoline. How's that going to go over in a presidential election? You, won't, you don't think there'll be calls for windfall profit taxes? We saw all this before during the Carter administration. So history repeats. So we don't know what's going to happen. That's why we want, you know, we got to be nimble. We got to pay attention. Can't just sit, you know, set and forget. Uh, that's what a lot of people did. That's why people that are in ARC, you know, they bought technology, they got in, it's never ending, always goes up, recency bias, the whole psychological matrix that we've talked about. But we're not like that. We know that this will eventually top out. We know eventually that you know oil will go into a bear market. We know that there's sufficient oil in the ground. It just requires time and money. But we're nowhere close to that now. So anyways, let's get on. I Just a little commentary I wanted to give. Uh, hopefully that was useful for you. Um, but that's my thinking around this, how I'm thinking about it. I mean, I'm very excited for 2022. I'm excited for the next couple of few years in energy. I mean, we're gonna we're gonna see unprecedented uh, events here. I think in the next couple of few years, and I can't even predict them all. Um, some of them, I think, are going to be social, you know, so society wide, economic, uh, world economic impact. It's going to be a big deal. I think this is this is you know the Federal Reserve talking about raising rates to one and a half or two percent in the next couple of years. It's not what's going to derail the economy. 150 or $200 a barrel oil is what's every, you look back in time, every single recession is preceded by high energy prices. That's what's going to do it this time. Okay. That's the bottom line. So uh, I don't know what that is, what the pain point is 100, 150, $200 a barrel. I do not know, but demand is pretty much inelastic. Once you buy a car and you're building all those roads in India, you're not going to park it. You're going to drive the thing. So anyways, uh, this was a discussion people were having, you know, open interest was down, you know, if oil is going to go up, what's going on, but you're seeing already a lot of money is coming back into the oil market, into the contracts, buying contracts up. Um, I'm not subscribing any particular significance to this. I'm not saying this is actionable. I'm just telling you that money's coming back into this market, uh, a lot of money. So this was, I thought this was interesting. Uh, maybe somebody that's more schooled up on futures would understand if this has some significance, but uh, uh, this is, uh, I found this very interesting in the article. I'll, I'll attach the articles uh, where I get this information from my various sources. 
uh, in the show notes. Uh, another thing, you know, this is another thing we talked about. I'm not going to mention this. You can read it. I'm circling it here. This thing here that cannot be named. If you don't want to get demonetized or kicked off uh, certain platforms, it's not affecting oil demand. This is another thing that we thought would happen. We were pretty, pretty quick to call that after the data out of South Africa. And we're seeing that, right? Uh, there's a lot of people out sick and stuff. There's going to be some more shortages, going to be some more supply disruptions, but oil demand's coming back. And as this thing rolls over, which we're already seeing more and more data that that's going to be happening, uh, this is not going to be like Delta or Alpha. And I think that things are going to, you know, rebound. I mean, that's human beings. They're resilient. They bounce back. And then, you know, uh, I've already saw that Mexico lifted most of their entry requirements, El Salvador. I mean, you might think that that's not a big deal, but it is. I mean, Mexico is one of the largest tourist areas. So uh, in the world where people go. So uh, you're going to see more and more of that. Uh, politicians that are reluctant or s uh, slow on the draw are going to get left in the dust when the elections come because the people are not going to put up for this anymore. Two years of closures is enough. People want the economies open. They want some, they're, they're worn out. They're tired. And so I think that, um, you know, a lot of places are already saying we're back to over pre-pandemic demand levels. And, you know, now it's going to run into possibly supply uh, issues, uh, thereby causing the price. I mean, we're seeing the, the inventories be drawn down. That means that the production increases are not su sufficient to meet the demand. So we're drawing down inventories. At some point, that becomes a problem. And that's why you have the, you know, that's why the oil prices go up. It's signaling producers produce more oil. There's insufficient oil. That's why the price is going up. So uh, good for us because uh, I think we were early. We were buying a lot of the shares cheap. There's still good value there. You know, I'm really bullish on oil field services because that's already starting to, you know, twitch around on the floor. People thought it was dead, but severely undervalued based on what the current oil price is. And any reinvestment cycle, any cycle of putting money back in is going to lead to uh, action in the oil field services sector, because what's also interesting, you have to remember, after one of the largest oil, oil depressions, energy depressions, if you will, oil and gas exploration development, where they, you know, that lack of spending, tightening everything down, layoffs, the whole shebang in the last couple of years, um, that reverberated into the oil field service. We had many companies shrunk massively, you know, National Oil Well, Varco, Baker Hughes, Schlumberger, they all tightened their belts. They laid people off in mass. Lots of smaller companies went out of business or were absorbed, more cost cutting, more closing of facilities. And now, you know, uh, as I said before, we showed a slide a couple of weeks ago, JP Morgan estimated 9% growth in new spending for uh, exploration and production uh, increases and 13% this year. So we're, we are recovering and we already saw, I already saw an initial report on one of the companies in the portfolio uh, year over year and uh, sequential growth in their business is double digits. So this thing's turning around. And uh, like I said, you're, there's an extreme gap in where oil field services uh, the oil field services index has traded in the past at this current oil price. So I still think there's a lot of trepidation. A lot of market players don't believe in this rally. The rally's climbing a, a, a wall of worry. It's still the people that the, the, the front runners, the people that have done the real work, the Johnny come lately's, the generalist investors, the pension funds, the insurance companies, all these people that wanted to get out of it. I mean, Energy was the best performing sector last year. If you weren't in energy, you got dusted on your performance. And it's going to happen this year. We're going to show it. You, you can't hide out in tech. That's over with. Okay. We're, we're going to show you that. We've, we've been showing you that, and that's going to continue. Here it is. Here's your, you know, we've showed some other charts. You can play around with different indexes. You know, here's your uh, New York Stock Exchange FANG Plus index uh, relative to the S&P Energy Sector Index. And as you can see, the outperformance in the FANG stocks for the last couple few years relative to energy. Was look at this, uh, it was tremendous outperformance, okay? And look what's happened. If you are, you know, do you wanna be long this chart or short this chart? What, what is this telling you? You don't have to be an expert in technical analysis. This thing broke down, it peaked out, it's been breaking down and now it's broken down again. Uh, I would not wanna be long this chart. Can this thing round trip? Absolutely. 
I fully expect it to. That's a tremendous move in energy stocks relative to the FANG stocks. So, um, like I said, I mean, they, I mean, the generalist investors, market participants, they're coming to where we are. That's the title of this slide. So from the article, oil prices that rallied 50% in 2021 will power further ahead this year. Some analysts predict saying a lack of production capacity and limited investment in the sector could lift crude to $90 or even $100 a barrel. You know, what's funny is we've been talking about this for over a year. We knew this was going to happen. We forecasted it. We put our own money in it. And we are, you know, I'm not going to give the amount. We are very doing very well. Let's put it that way. And, you know, these companies like Reuters and Bloomberg, they're always, okay, wow, you really figured this out now? Wow, what news? What, what public service you're doing, okay? What analysis is this, you know? Um, telling people after these tremendous moves, uh, you know, and, and, and they're just now coming around, coming around. So what kind of analysis are you getting? You cannot get your analysis and your thinking from the mainstream media. They are always gonna be running after the news, okay? They don't think ahead. There's no critical thinking. There's very little proper forecasting. It's all, you know, uh, stick my finger in the wind and see what's happening. Ch these are the ultimate chasing the shining object people. That's why magazine covers are very, very uh, good predictive, uh, especially in the Economist magazine. So uh, they finally figured this out, right? Wow, they'll pour, you, you really think Reuters? Good, good job on you. So there's a quote here. Assuming China doesn't suffer a sharp slowdown, that uh, Omicron actually becomes Omegon and with OPEC Plus's ability to raise production clearly limited, all things we've been talking about for a while here on this channel with 8,000 people watch, uh, subscribers. Uh, I wish I was, I wish my little channel was as worth a fraction of what Bloomberg and Reuters were worth. But anyways, I see no reason why Brent crude cannot move towards 100 in Q1, possibly sooner. Some analysts that no one's ever heard of here. But uh, with the prospect of depleting crude inventories, something we've been talking about and showing, and it's not me, it's not like I'm a genius. There's plenty of, like I said, you got to curate a great Twitter curation of smart people. I want to be in a room with people that are five times, 10 times smarter than me and just sit there and listen. That's what I do. That's my key to success. Finding people that are smarter than me, listening to their ideas, trying to figure out and take it apart and put it back together and see if it makes sense. And if it does, roll with it. That's what I do. I'm not saying I don't come with some ideas myself, but that being stimulation of ideas and getting early by finding people that have records of success and actually know what they're talking about. That certainly isn't going to be Bloomberg or BNN or CNBC. With the prospect of depleting crude inventories and low spare capacity by the second half of 2022 and limited investments in the oil and gas sector, the market will have little margin of safety. Amen. That's what's going to happen. Here's our friend Eric Nuttall. He regularly publishes in the Financial Post. What did he say? I mean, this is the guy whose fund got decimated. He was what we call the last of the Mohicans. He was one of the last uh, fund managers in Canada specific to energy. Um, he was, you know, we watched his hair get progressively grayer on BNN when he, they had him on, but he never wavered. He always, uh, it wasn't a broken clock either. He had the math. He had the receipts. He talked about the lack of ability to increase production and that oil being so fundamental to what it is to industry and to civilization, uh, although he wasn't that dramatic as I am about it, uh, knew that we had eventually turned. And when the worm turned, now I think he's one of the best performing funds in Canada this year, and his uh, fund has swelled in uh, uh, people are banging the door down trying to give him money. But anyways, what does he say? As demand continues to outstrip oil production, a top performing energy money manager says the fundamentals are in place for crude to hit $100 per barrel by the end of the year. Quote, the oil market remains exceptionally tight. Eric Nuttall, senior portfolio manager at Nine Point Partners, said in an interview Tuesday, goes on to say, when we look at global oil demand, we're back to pre-COVID levels. So there are strong reasons to believe that the market will continue to grow throughout this year as Omicron passes. I mean, that's our thesis. We, 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 we are on board with that. But the real story remains on supply. I believe we're in a structural bull market, a multi-year bull market for oil that will end in all-time high oil prices. Why? Insufficient investment will lead to insufficient supply, which will slam into growing demand, 
i.e. aka record oil prices. Again, uh, I put this on here to be funny. Why will we record, why we will record oil record oil prices lessons number 23? I mean, I'm just making that up. I don't know how many lessons or reasons I've given why I think record oil prices are coming, but here's another one. Europe's big oil companies are planning to spend their windfall from high energy prices on becoming small oil. Exactly. E <clears throat> Excuse me. They're getting beat up by ESG. Like I said, there's pending court cases right now in Europe against these oil companies for destroying the environment by nut job environmentalists. Surging oil and gas prices in 2021 delivered billions of dollars in profits to top oil companies, and they're not reinvesting it, right? And they're slimming down, so their cash flows are exploding. In stark contrast to the previous year, when energy prices collapsed as the coronavirus pandemic hit travel and economic activity. All of the large oil companies are managing decline to agree to a degree by shifting to fields that provide larger investment returns for shareholders and leaving more mature assets behind, said Ben Cook, portfolio manager with BP Capital Fund Advisors. Exactly. This isn't going to help the situation. Now, this will eventually turn. The zeitgeist will switch. The, the, the views will switch. Uh, managements will change because what will happen is when oil prices get to a huge amount, the boards and the managements that were in these, the stock prices will suffer, the shareholders will suffer, and these managements will be changed out. It's the same thing that happened in the shale patch, right? All the guys that are in the shale patch now are guys that were not there during drill, baby, drill. All those guys were fired or removed or quit, all right, because that blew up in their face, and you got a new crop, and what are they preaching? We're not going to spend money. We're not going to take on debt. We're not going to drill, baby, drill. We're going to return shareholder money and cash uh, dividends and buybacks by pay and paying down debt. But when you get to 150, 100, 150, they're going to start drilling again. And if they don't, they'll be replaced. It's just how it is. It's just how economics works. So uh, again, here's a uh, shy girl, Tracy, uh, I forget her last name. She's, uh, she's really prolific on Twitter. That's what I was talking about earlier, right, guys? Breaking live news, right? To combat rising energy prices, Italy's industry minister, yeah, this industry minister who probably never worked in the industry, believes the government is likely to raise corporate taxes on energy companies. Um, yeah, uh, what she says here, mm, yeah, that's not how that works. You don't incentivize people by, uh, you could disincentivize them to make high profits by going out and trying to produce more energy by taxing them more. If you tax cigarettes, Smoking goes down over time. That's what we've seen. People respond to incentives, both good and bad. If you give them good incentives, where they're incentivized for their self-preservation uh, or their self, uh, for them to get you know more wealth, they will produce. If you disincentivize them or punish them, they won't. It's just that simple. This will not fix the problem, though. So here's a slide here. We're seeing more of this. Um, a lot of people are down because, you know, there was a lot of, there was a big outbreak in the last couple months. It kind of died down now. Uh, it was a supernova event about uranium to the moon and all that kind of stuff when Sprott first came out with the, um, with the, uh, unit trust and, and, and buying up all the uranium spot uranium, which they continue to do. They're hoovering up. It's just a matter of time. But that was the initial blast. All retail came in, ran up a lot of the uranium names way above what the current uranium price probably justified. But this is like the most bullish thing out there. I don't care. Tech, this is the Every week now, I'm, I'm finding story after story that makes me more bullish on nuclear energy and uranium. Okay, what's this week? New EU nuclear plants need $568 billion investment. Commissioner says nuclear power needed for energy transition. Europe's energy classifications face criticism from Greens. Well, people are getting a taste of what happens when you listen to the Greens. Energy shortages sitting in your house with two sweaters on, mittens, and four pairs of socks, and uh, five quilts at night. Uh, that's, and your standard of living going down. That's, you know, if that's what it takes to be green, living dark, cold, and hungry in your apartment 
uh, people aren't interested in that. If that means CO2 emissions go from 400 to 450 ppm, uh, guess what's guess what's going to happen? So the trade-off is for a lot of these people that they finally understand, which we have been talking about since this channel has started. I'm the biggest advocate for nuclear power ever. It's the cleanest, cheapest, best source of power available to mankind. It's that simple. It's not even it, without a doubt. And all these various canards that people come up with about the waste, they simply, quite frankly, and don't take this personally or take it personally, you don't know what you're talking about. It's not like the stuff is just dumped on the ground. It's fully contained. It's easy to deal with. It's not a problem. Okay. It's not a problem. Uh, it's a lot easier to deal with than the ash ponds, uh, tons of ash with cadmium and lead that we, from coal burning. Uh, it's easier to deal with than uh, fracking all over the place, uh, and frac fluids and dealing with produced water from natural gas. Um, it's uh, not having to dig out all these mines and everything all over the world for the copper, steel, aluminum, silica, polysilicon to make solar panels. So this is just the way to go. What's this article say? A colossal, that's a quote, investment in nuclear energy will be needed over the next 30 years to meet the European Union's emissions reduction targets and growing demand for electricity, the bloc's internal market chief said. Existing nuclear plants need 50 billion euros of investment through 2030, while the next generation will require 500 billion euros, that's $568 billion between now and 2050, Breton said in an interview with France's Weekly Journal. Quote, the green transition will lead to an industrial revolution of unprecedented scale, unquote. That's what I've said. If you want to bring back the United States' manufacturing, if you are big on STEM, like I am, science, technology, engineering, and math, if you want a high paid workforce, if you want to uh, buck up the American worker, uh, why not adopt my uh, plan? I've said 10 and, 10 and 10 and 10 and 5, 110 years. Let's, why don't we build 100, 1,000 megawatt nuclear power plants over the next 20 years? Why don't we commit to doing that? Okay. And, and say that they have to be US designed and the most of the critical components have to be manufactured in this country. And the government will get behind it and partner with, uh, with industry. Let's be the technological leader. Let's standardize the designs, okay? You go to current plants that were built in the 70s that Bechtel or somebody built, you might have two units there and they're completely, they're, 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 they're not exactly the same. That's stupid, okay? We should be standardizing designs. We should have incentives. The government should backstop for insurance and things like that and incentivize this. We would have an explosion of high paying jobs, science and engineering demands for people to work here. Uh, high technology manufacturing, if you know how the components are manufactured, okay? I mean, for the reactor vessels, they have to be basically forged. There's only like two or three forges in the world. One's in Japan, I think one in Russia and one in Belarusia, okay? Uh, that may have changed, but I mean, that stuff should be here. You know, those kind of guys that work in that kind of business, those are eighty dollars to $100,000 a year union jobs, okay? With good benefits that allow you to raise a family. That's what we should be doing. So I'll get off my soapbox about how nuclear power can uh, revitalize our economy. The French commissioner's comments come after the EU unveiled plans to allow certain natural gas and nuclear energy projects to be classified as sustainable investments. So you see this all over the world, whether it's China's 150 reactors are gonna build over the next 15 years, um, more announcements all over the, third, over the developing world, Bangladesh putting another reactor in, Turkey, Argentina, wherever you go, people are embracing nuclear power. What you are not seeing announcements of are new uranium mines. And so that is why, again, you know, what's going to happen here is nothing's going to happen or it gets boring. This is what typically happens in these commodity, these cyclical markets and something you need to be aware of. You're sitting there for two years, nothing happens like we did in uranium. A catalyst comes along. I mean, you have the underlying in the background supply demand fundamentals that are slowly but surely working their magic on the market. And then boom, everybody wakes up and the thing takes off uh, at a 45 degree angle like, like it's stolen. It's running like it's stolen, like somebody stole it. So 
that's what happens. But you have to sit there and wait. You don't know when it's going to happen. And that's typically with how this works. Now, if you look at a chart of like URNM or any of these, you know, a lot of these type things, they're still in bull markets. They're still, you know, trading. You know, they got way ahead of themselves a few months ago when people got all excited. And in the meantime, nothing's really changed fundamentally. The fundamentals just continue to get better. So do you have the fortitude? Do you have the conviction? Do you even understand what's going on? If you do, you buy the dip in uranium. This is going to be along with oil. I mean, this is almost perfectly lining up for us, guys. We have a situation where the oil market's going nuts. We're making big money in our oil stocks. And this thing could, we could catch a run where we have an overlapping two runs where oil spikes, we roll a lot of those windfall profits right into a uranium market that is giving us another bite at the apple. I mean, this is, I mean, if you, this, it, it, it's a good look. So, you know, the longer that uranium kind of stays down while Sprott keeps up hoovering up the, the pounds and people keep announcing more and more uh, nuclear power plants with no mines being built, this is good for us. And if it takes, you know, I would like to, I would like to see the spike happening after, you know, maybe uranium starts really moving up big time later this year or, in, or next year, that would fit perfect with us because I think by then oil is going to, our oil stocks and our service stocks are going to go nuts and we could roll right into it. You know, a bunch of stuff that went up three, four, five times in oil and we roll right over into, you know, uh, beaten down uranium names. So um, I'm not really worried about it. I'm not a Johnny come lately. A lot of my uranium stocks were up five, six, seven times but I bought in when nobody else was talking about it. Myself, John Quakes, and like two other people on Twitter talking about nuclear power and everybody else, you know, there was no one else. Now everybody talks about it, right? So that, and that's good. That's not, you know, it's not me bragging. It's just how it is. Uh, was I early? Yeah, but you gotta be early because that's when you're getting in at the really small market caps, okay? So um, there's a few of us long in the, you know, old school guys, you know, uh, old hats, if you want to call us, whatever. And, uh, you know, I, my view has not changed. Fundamentally, things are better every single day that I report. Now, let's talk about something that can maybe derail us. I don't want to just be one of these guys that rah-rahs, you know, or rides the wave and just tell you it's nothing but, you know, skittles and rainbows. You know, the world is entering a rate heights. Like, we have tremendous out-of-control inflation in a lot of countries. Here's a chart. You can see it. Um, you can see the uh, current inflation rates in a lot of these countries uh, from the lowest to the highest. You can see uh, the last move, uh, real, real central bank yields. Look at how many countries have negative real rates. You know, here's the U.S. down. Here's one of the worst uh, six point. Where are we at on here? We're on here. Um, I don't know. U.S. right here. Yes. Negative 6.9% negative real rates. Um but you can see that you're starting to see a lot of hikes now. Remember, if you've been with me a long time, you remember when I was talking about uh, using the one tool on the Council of Foreign Relations that measures worldwide liquidity, and we were like maximum liquidity. And it goes to, you know, starts at zero. Negative 10 means maximum amount of rate cuts and liquidity. Plus 10 means tightening. And, you know, we just had everybody after this uh, deal that happened last year and 220 with this uh, pandemic-induced economic collapse, everybody was cutting rates and flooding the world with liquidity. Well, that's why, you know, that's why we're having this inflation outburst now, right? As Milton Friedman said, you know, uh, inflation is a every, everywhere and always a monetary event. You print too much money and the supply of goods doesn't keep up, you have price increases. And you exacerbate that by having supply issues with the supply chain and self-inflicted gunshot wounds by politicians for example, uh, Justin Castro Trudeau, uh, who now is going to ban U.S. truckers that are unvaccinated from coming coming into Canada, uh, I hope that you've stocked up with supplies in Canada because you, when you have these fee, done by fiat without thinking uh, things, this is why this is what I do as a speculator. I look for things like this because there'll be an opportunity to take advantage of that, right? These stoops come in, make these policies for political reasons, nothing based on medicine or science. And they create these distortions in the economy. And uh, as George Soros said, find the premise that is incorrect and 
bet against it. I mean, constantly with these politicians, you know, we were, you know, whether you want to, whether you want to say about the orange man, he was pro U.S. energy. So the current administration is negative U.S. energy unless it's green energy. Well, that's not working. I'm not saying Joe Biden's causing oil prices to go up, but he's going to have to wear it. And he's not having policies put in place here in the U.S. that's going to help alleviate that. And he's going to have to wear that, uh, pin the tail of higher oil prices on him. It's the same thing. When food becomes short up there and, you know, people are going to blame these politicians and they're going to have to wear it. And those things cause more inflation. Okay. You have to look at supply and demand at the same time. But this is something that could derail uh, our view or slow up our view. Now, the world, the developed world is so in debt. I don't think these rate cycles, rate hiking cycles, they'll keep raising rates. It's kind of maybe like 2018, right? Um, it took them like three years. They were raising rates. I, I guess I should put the chart up. I'll try to do it next week of the last rate raising cycle. It took forever. They were just slow playing it so long to raise rates. They got rates up to like maybe two and a quarter, two and a half percent. We, you know, started having all these issues in 2018, right before the end of the year. And Mr. Powell reversed himself immediately. And they went, you know, started, you know, uh, going back and then everything because this market runs on sediment and liquidity. So um, this is something that could derail it. If we're getting into a rate hiking cycle, but how, how far will they go? That's the question, right? Because um, these, the, the, the over-indebtedness of the governments and the private sector and the, all these markets, they've had free money for so long. There's so many distortions in the economy and so much malinvestment that a lot of these projects that were, they can't even handle small increases in rates things starts just falling apart. And so you, you got an election year this year in the Congress. It ain't looking good for the, the powers that be that are in there. Um, but it's a catch-22. You've got 7% CPI. It's actually higher if you look at it from the way that the CPI was previously calculated. John Williams at Shadow Stats says it could be 15%. Some people have said higher if you calculate it the way we used to. And, you know, people are suffering. Um, I noticed it. I mean, we were just talking to, I was getting a subway today and the lady that was in there, we were just talking and she was like, you know, I, I calculated it. It looks like my food prices are up like 40 or 50%. And that's a big deal for a person like me, you know, and we we're in some rinky dink town over here, West of Houston. And she's paying 900 a month in rent. And I was like 900, I'm thinking to myself, 900 a month for rent in this rinky dink town. I mean, so, you know, and she's works as a sandwich person at subway. So she's not like, you know, making big bucks. And these people are going to be looking for somebody to blame. And so the Federal Reserve and the government, not just here, but in a lot of these countries, they're, they're stuck. Now, you have negative rates all through here. And when I look at this, when I look at negative real rates, I'm thinking to myself, and gold is not higher. Guys, I've been buying more gold stocks. They are so undervalued. I'm just going to throw that out there as we close. I look at this chart and I say, you know, one of the primary drivers, or if not the most biggest primary driver of gold prices long-term is negative is negative rates or the direction of rates, if they're moving negative or extremely negative. We have rates more negative now than they were in the 1970s when gold made all-time uh, all highs back then. So I think that this inflation problem doesn't go away as easy as everybody thinks. I think they could get into a situation. Let me, let's game this out, okay? They're starting this rate hiking cycle. They're going to slow play it they're going to keep raising it, trying to get cute with the QT, pulling it back. And, and I'm not saying they shouldn't, but I'm just telling you what's, what I think is going to happen. They're going to do it until they break something. You're going to have some kind of junk bond uh, fiasco or some something's going to go haywire and it's going to cause them to have to reverse themselves. And I think that is when gold really catches a bid when people just say the Federal Reserve is trapped. It gets acknowledged that they're trapped, that they really can't do anything about this. And then you could get a real panic where people say, well, this could get out, this could really turn into a, you know, a cycle of higher inflation and the central bank cannot, cannot do anything about it. And that is, that's where you get into where people start worrying, is this going to turn into Argentina or Turkey or something where you have double digit inflation? So 
I'm not saying that's going to happen, but it's all about perception, right? It's all about what people think would happen. It's the narrative that gets created in the market. So with gold being, and what's, what's fascinating is I was listening to uh, Jim Poplava's uh, podcast. I subscribed to it. It's a hundred, hundred bucks a year. They had Pierre Lassonde on, who's the uh, chairman uh, and the founder of Franco Nevada. It's a big gold royalty, the biggest one. Very, this guy's a billionaire. Interesting story. But he was saying the same thing. He was just going over the stats. You know, gold mining companies are making record profits and cash flows at these gold prices because what? They're not doing what they did in the past when they had a windfall. They're not going out and doing dumb acquisitions. They're not out there just wasting money. I mean, some of these gold stocks like Newmont and Barrick are paying pretty decent dividends now. So, I mean, 4%, I think, on Newmont are close to it, something like this. So, I think that that's another sector that's just like, completely ignored. It hasn't done anything. And that's just what we're looking for, right? We had the big move a couple of years ago, and now we've had this pullback um, in prices consolidation. And if I look at a chart, I should have put the chart up here. It looks like it's, it's consolidating into a triangle, which means it's either going to break higher or lower. Typically, when that happens, the price action is usually a break to the a continuation of what it was doing before, which was going up. So, I think it's possible, and uh, it's possible that gold prices could make new new all time highs. Because I think I don't think they're going to be able to squash this as easily as people think. It's now becoming into people's psyche that this is not transitory, and people are going to start reacting. And that's the worst thing that the Fed can do. And then if they get exposed, if they break something, which inevitably I think they will, because these this fake, phony, over-leveraged economy cannot handle even, you know, two or three percent rates. So uh, something's going to break and then they're going to panic and reverse and people are going to go, oh man, the barn's on fire, open the gate, the horses are going to run. So I uh, just wanted to talk about that at the end. I'm not, you know, you never know, it could be wrong, but uh, this, this, this is something, a couple things, you know, just to re, just to reemphasize, you know, Rate hiking cycle could cause a, a problem with our uh, up commodity thesis, but I think it'll be temporary because all these over indebted economies, if you look down the list, they're all over indebted. They're going to have to do the same thing. They're just going to have to print. And that's just, you know, is good for commodities. I think overall, if you just, you know, are selective and think over the next five to 10 years, uh, that uh, real assets are the place to be, I think you're going to do well. If you try to get cute and trade in and out of it every week, you're probably not going to do well. But you take a more secular view and understand that you're going to have dips uh, from different portions of the commodity market, but an overall secular tailwind, um, I think that's how you have to look at it. All right, guys, that's it for this week. Uh, appreciate the uh, viewership. Appreciate the support. You know, take a, take a look at the newsletter. If you don't, you know, if you want to help me out, a lot of people say, well, how can I help you out? I don't really need your newsletter. I don't care about your newsletter. Uh, I do my own thing, but I still like to help you out. You know, you can make a comment. You can like this. And I'm not ashamed to ask for this because that helps with the algorithm, right? You can like the, like the videos, you su subscribe to the channel, and that helps us out. And that's just a click of the button. And uh, we would appreciate that. All right, guys, thanks. And we'll talk to you next week.